Good evening TDN listeners, it is 8pm on Wednesday, August 20th and as usual on a Wednesday night at 8pm on the East Coast of the United States, we have This Week in Interview. So welcome to This Week in Interview. I am your host, Anthony Drago. I have not been with you for a couple of weeks, more than a couple, about three weeks, and I must say that I missed you. Uh, I hope you missed me too, although, although we did have um, some replay, um, which we, we got some pretty good feedback on. A lot of listeners were saying that um, it, they were timely. But yes, um, number of things, traveling, and then, and then I had um, a severe suffering. So I apologize. I missed you. I hope you missed me too. But um, this is this week in interview. Uh, for Wednesday, August the 20th, 2014. Our topic tonight is policing and the relationship between the police and the community. And, um, you know, we des- I decided that that was a very relevant uh, topic. It's in, the, it's in the news quite a bit. We, we see the discussion that's going on in the U.S. and there's some incidents that, that took place in the Caribbean as well. And um, we thought that that would be an interesting topic uh, to have tonight. So as usual, on this weekend interview, our objective is to bring you um, discussions and information about topics that you will find interesting and that will stimulate you to take some action. We, we, we try to break things down into everyday language so that you and I can understand it. We bring in experts. Uh, we bring in professionals who can give us a different perspective, look at things from a different point of view, and who can also guide us as to what steps that that we can take. So, so as I said tonight, we're going to deal with this issue of policing and community affairs. We've had incidents in the United States, I'm sure you've all, most of you are aware of that, but we've also had incidents in Dominica, in Jamaica, and some of the other islands, and we just thought that now would be a good time to take a pause and look at this thing from a professional point of view and decide, um, you know, what is it that we need to do to make this relationship better between the police and the community. As usual, at the top, I always like to start the program with a little bit of the CARICOM anthem by Mikael Henderson. Um, because, I, as you know, if you've been listening to this program, I am a huge proponent of the um, of Caribbean unity and so I am I'm just absolutely excited that that CARICOM has an anthem and, uh, so let's listen to a little bit more of the CARICOM anthem when we come back and we're going to be joined by a special guest and we're going to be talking about in homage to those gone before us the heroes of lands in the we vow to join hands and to focus on building one Caribbean. Raise your voices high, sing of your Caribbean pride. Sing it loud and strong, feel the hearts beat as one. Celebrate in song as we Belong. Sound of victory draw 
Malcolm Anthem by Michael Henderson. Beautiful song. And um, I like to play it every week so we can remind each other that um, one of the objectives is CARICOM unity, one nation. The Caribbean should be one nation. That's what I believe. Anyhow, tonight, as I told you, we're going to be talking about um, policing and community relationship with the police. And um, we know lately this interaction has not been very fruitful. It's been very negative. There's been tension. And it's not new. Um, as a matter of fact, <laughs> Bob Marley sang, I shot the sheriff. All right, I shot the sheriff by Bob Marley. Just an illustration that tensions between the police and young people, tension between the police and the community is nothing new. And um, lately in the news, we've been seeing quite a bit of police and community tension. Um, in the last few weeks, we've seen the interaction of the police and the community. This has been in the news, the death of Eric Garner in Staten Island in New York, the shooting of Mike Brown in misery that has resulted in, um, in riots and protests. Uh, in the Caribbean, we've also had some incidents. We've had four police officers in Dominica who have been arrested uh, really in relation to the death of a young man while he was in their custody. And in Jamaica, there's an investigation into six police officers who are being associated with the death of a young man um, who they took in custody. They did, they did um, try to charge three other men who were in custody at the time with the, with the death, the beating death of the young man. But six police officers have been disciplined. Some of them suspended in Jamaica. And I'm sure if we do... Uh, the run of the news, we will find other incidents of tension and negative interaction between the police and um, and the community. So this is what we're going to talk about and deal with on this week in interview this week for Wednesday, August 20th, 2014. If you are one of our many loyal listeners, uh, as usual, I'm very excited to have you on board. If this is your first time listening, welcome on board. We hope that um, after tonight, you too will become a very um, loyal listener as well and, and join in the discussion. We will be taking a break at the bottom of the hour, after which time I shall give out the call-in number for those of you who wish to, to join in the discussion. Uh, but in, this evening, we are, we are very fortunate um, that we're going to be joined... Um, very shortly by Dr. Peter Senja. Dr. Peter Senja is a criminologist and a sociologist with years of experience in dealing with the interaction of police and the community. Um, in fact, Dr. Senja, in my opinion, is undoubtedly one of the leading thinkers on the subject of policing, and he has trained many police departments in the strategies that they could use to, to, to in the interaction with the community that would result in more effective policing. Um, Dr. Sejan is going to be joining us very shortly in, on the program. Um, he is no stranger to this week in interview. He's been with us several times. Uh, he's been very... Uh, generous with his time. Every time we reach out to him, 
um, he has willingly, very willingly consented to to come on the program. So Dr. Senja will be will be joining us. Will be joining us shortly. But um, in the meantime, you know, there there are thoughts that we have uh, when every time we look at the news and and. Um, we will go into them in, in, in a little bit of detail, but um, there are several factors. Uh, what happens in the U.S., of course, um, there's question of race. I mean, race relations, because it seems to happen disproportionately um, to persons of color um, being on the on the negative end of the of the interaction with the police. And, but when it happens in the Caribbean, um, I think there's less of that issue. For example, it happened in Dominica. I don't think race would have been much of a factor in that in that instance. But um, so what we wanted to do is there's enough there's enough talking points um, on the, on the media. There's enough talking points on popular media. There's enough people expressing opinions. Uh, but this weekend interview, we usually take uh, a different approach. We 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 try to bring persons in who are qualified to to experts in the field, so that our listeners can be a little more informed. You can you can get an idea as to what exactly you you want to do, uh, what exactly you can do about about the situation, what. What is a professional approach um, to to this whole um, you know topic? We don't just want to be just another talking head, just talking about oh well, they shouldn't riot or they should riot or it's race related or or, or the police brutalizes um, young black people. We really want to to look at it from an objective point of view, and we would like to be able to come up with with solutions that solutions that are long lasting solutions that result in in the, making the job of the police very much easier making the interaction more smooth and at the end of the day resulting in in safety of the citizenship citizenry um which is which is which is the objective of um of most law enforcement, the interestingly, in terms of reaction, um, I, I told you about the incident that happened in in Dominica, and and as soon as you know it was established that this this young man died um, and he was associated with beating, the the police steps were taken to to hold the police accountable. Um, similarly, in Jamaica, you have the prime minister. Making very strong statements about um, making very strong statements about the um, you know, trying to hold persons responsible for trying to hold persons responsible for for any brutality, any violation of of persons' rights that may have occurred um, while they're in police custody. Uh, we don't see. We don't see a similar response, at least not not as not as expediently. We don't see that type of response um, from the police in the U.S. We don't we don't um, 
you know, it, it is, it's an investigation that goes on for a very long time, you know, and, and persons are asking for answers and they're not getting answers. So I think that um, Dr. Sejan, yeah, um, are you ready for us? Okay, so as I, I was telling um, the listeners that um, tonight we, we're going to be discussing um, policing and, and community relationships. And, and of course, we consider you to be one of the leading experts in that, in that field. So I want to tell you a very special welcome to um, this week in interview and, and again to express our, our heartfelt gratitude that you're so generous with your time. Um, whenever we ask you to come on, you're always so willing to come on. So welcome to this week in interview. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Anthony. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Yes, and um, we we want to dive right in. Um, of course, as I said before, Dr. Peter Senger is a criminologist and a sociologist. He's also the founder and executive director of a Peaceful World Movement. And, and so, Dr. Senger, why we thought this was an interesting topic is because there was so much news and so much so much talk in the media centered around the interaction, the, the killings really of, of persons by the police, not only in the US, but I, but there, there's an incident in Dominica, there was one recently in Jamaica. And um, you, 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 when you listen to the news, you, you find persons who may not necessarily be experts, you might see emotions running high as well. So we thought it would be, it would be really a, a good thing to have somebody who is trained who can who can give us a perspective from a trained from a trained eye to help us put it in perspective more also importantly to help provide us with some guidance as to how you know we can deal with um with the with the interaction of police and communities make it more more smooth yes 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 sir yes Anthony, i i certainly welcome the opportunity to do that and um you know i am i i'm at the at the mercy of following your lead and um Hopefully, we have some participation from from our from our from our audience as we discuss these very important issues. Yes, definitely. I am um, after the, the break at the bottom of the hour. I will give out the numbers so persons can can call in if they wish to. But if you if you will, one of the areas that I wanted to to jump in and touch on is the reaction of the police, um, and maybe in contrast, I was I was saying that we had an incident in Dominica. Where a young man was taken into custody, and it is he, it's alleged that he was he was beaten by the police, and he died as a result of his injuries from that beating, and um, almost immediately four police officers were arrested. Um, we had a, a similar incident in Jamaica, where we've had six police officers already um, disciplined, some of them suspended. Uh, when we look at that and we contrast it to what's happening in the U.S. Um, we don't see that type of reaction, that type of move to hold the police accountable. Um, how how do you how what is your what is your take? What is your perspective on on that? Well, um, I think we we ought to look at um, every incident um, on on its own merit uh, and not really. In a blanket, in a blanket way, because there have been times in the history of Dominica and history of Jamaica uh, when 
police officers committed acts where they were accused or suspected to have been in wrongdoing and did not receive this kind of speedy uh, response by the chief and by the judiciary as we are seeing now. And there have been instances in the United States when police officers have done wrong and we have seen very speedy responses, you know. So so I, I, I want to be careful that that we are not um, that that we are not using those two incidents as hundred uh, percent incidents of the reality in Dominica and in the Caribbean and the reality uh, uh, in the United States, right? So if we look at those instances, instances and instances in Jamaica, if we look at the instance in Dominica, and if we look at the instances in the United States, well, of course, we are still to ask that question, you know, as to what is it about those instances that make the response of the judiciary so quick or so slow in those particular instances, rather than thinking that that's just the general way that the Caribbean operates and that's the general way that the United States operates. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. But but from your perspective, how does a a police administration then approach? Um, because it, because I, I, I my take is that policing has a lot to do with trust, the trust that your community has in your police force. So how does a police administration approach that so that the officers don't feel like they're being left hung out to dry at every instance um, they get punished? But at the same time, the community um, has to feel that there is, there is, there is a, a process for, for proper procedure, for proper accountability on the part of the police. Yes, oh, absolutely. And um, by the way, let me just say as a disclaimer that I have not had any direct communication with the chief of police, um, Mr. Daniel Carbon, you know, who was a collaborator of mine in, in Grand Bay when I started there in 1996, uh, when I wrote the book Lessons from Grand Bay, some of the contributions in there came from him. And I still serve as a national security advisor, uh, I'm pro bono as it is. Uh, and a direct advisor to him and, and work closely with uh, Deputy uh, Chief of Police um, um, Hobson Baptist, who, when Superintendent Nicholas George um, was, was there, we worked shoulder to shoulder um, in trying to deal with issues of how do we train police officers to respond, to provide service to the community, and in turn, how do we create a citizenry who interact with the police in such a way that they see the police as a service provider, among other service providers, but not, albeit the service provider that has the monopoly of violence and has the responsibility of, 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 of to relief all responses and so on. And so I say this to say that what I'm telling you is not based on my conversation with the chief of police over this incident recently. I have not. And, and to some degree, I will be calling him in the next few days for whatever way that I can probably assist. But if issues that are usually in courts and so on, we do not necessarily oftentimes discuss kind of the facts of the case. So if I did discuss some of that, I would not be able to talk about it in public. So what I'm going to tell you now or speak about now are not any uh, you know, issues of confidence that I have um about this matter but i'll tell you one thing it does not surprise me um in in dominica that the the response of the police uh was so swift in in what is perceived to have been wrongdoing among the right and file because uh, the chief of police that i know and the deputy chief that i know um are, are men that uh from my almost 17 years now working closely with them 
are men that see and understand well the importance of the uh, proper service from the police, the, the importance of a good esprit de corps and a good uh, sense of morality within the police force, and the and, and men who, to my understanding and interactions with them, uh, are not going to really protect or hide uh, are men that they see uh, do wrong, or women, men and women that they see do wrong, and we, uh, and believe in just and, and believe in justice, and believe that the wrongdoing of men and women in the rank and file is a bad reputation, is a bad stain on the entire police department. And one of the things that I heard when I went back in, when I was in Dominica, as you know, I was in Dominica for a month uh, during uh, June and July. And um, one of the things that I asked um, constables and corporals up to superintendents and, 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 and sergeants and so on about their, about their reaction to Daniel Carbon as a police chief is that, of course, they're all not happy with all of the things that the, the, the chief of police um, does in terms of the decision. But one thing that a lot of them are saying is that they expect that the esprit de corps and discipline in the police force to in improve because they know him as one of his strengths is a man that believes in a, a police force that is disciplined and is doing the right thing. Um, I, I, it's not, I mean, of course, it's, it's not going to be a 100% record on that, but I know him to be the person that would be trying to find justice and, uh, uh, and, and, and not hide the wrongdoing of police officers. So I was not surprised when, when, um, when I, that swift response occurred. And second of all, when we, from, at least from what I know indirectly of what some of the facts at least appear to be, that it, it seems that there, 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 was, there were blatant reasons to believe that um, moving swiftly and, and, and uh, with justice against the police officers that have been accused was probably the right thing to do given the facts that were on the table. Right. Now, I want, having heard what you said, and knowing that you, you've done a lot of work with police departments in the United States, um, you've done some work in Chicago and in some of the other communities, um, what we, what, at least what we see from the news seems to be a move in another direction where it's, there seems to be a strong move towards militarization of, of the police forces um, in, in urban environments. Um, it, it, ha, from from the work that from the consultancy that you've done in the Caribbean, and and we see that type of movement to maybe a softer, a softer, but firm, you know, hand with the community as opposed to what appears to be a show of force. Um, in on this side, uh, how if if for example you were. You were to be asked by the by the police um, department in Ferguson to to come in and, and and try to help them to deal with the situation. What 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 kind of approach do you think you would um, you would look at? Of course, not being there and doing all the facts, but just from from a thousand feet up. What 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 do you think would be a prudent um, approach? Well, a prudent approach would, would would first of all begin with the careful collecting and the uh, and understanding of facts of facts that relate to what happened, how it happened, why it happened, and to understand that 
instances of violence, instances of corruption, in instances of police brutality and the the use excessive use of force or excessive use of power are two things. Number one, those things are events, and number two, number two, those things are processes. What I mean by that is that the police brutality, the stuff you saw in in Ferguson, is an event because on a particular day at a particular time, Brown was killed. That's an event. But it is also a process, which is to say that there are some things that happened before that before he lost his life that tell us a lot about the probability of this thing happening and happening 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 now and happening in the future. And one of those things is really questioning what is the history of the police officer in terms of having this kind of heavy-handed approach. Was his life really, really at, at stake, as he was suggesting? Is the, is the evidence uh, that seems to be provided by the witness who was there that the gentleman had his hands up and he was shot 11 times? Are those type of things, are those things true? How, how, how likely could other police officers respond that same way to that young man, given... The, the, given the fact that that one police officer responded that way, and 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 if and so I would so 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 what what that careful kind of fact finding uh, uh, mission or fact finding process would do, it would give information to get us to understand what is the probability, what is the mindset that allowed the police officer to respond in that way, and which who are, are to what extent that we have other police officers. That may respond that way in that in in that manner to a situation like that and cause that kind of result. And therefore, what type of training do we need to buttress the probability of Brown happening again the way that, the way that it happened? That would be kind of, of of what I would say. I mean, the question you asked me actually has two kind of levels to it, and I will attend to one at a time. One of them was really about how would I advise about these issues of police brutality, and the second that you're asking about what explains what we see to be a rise of kind of the militarization of police. We saw in Trinidad that there was this, uh, this, this, this curfew, the state of emergency. We hear talks about the state of emergency that's happening now in Ferguson. Jamaica has had state of emergency. And in Chicago, there's been talk, there are talks right now on the table even about whether there should be a state of emergency in Chicago. So I just wanted to be, to be sure that I'm right now, I'm, just, I'm not answering to the, your question about the, the militarization of policing. And as you know myself, I'm a veteran in the United States Army. I was uh, in the Army National Guard. I spent 12 years serving in the military, so I understand, you know, even the ideas of can can soldiers really uh, uh, do a good job in in policing communities. You know, we can talk about that. But getting back to the question you asked, you know, what what I would say is that if one police officer can kill one black young man in a way that seems innocent on on the part of the victim, as we know, to what extent is the police department and other police departments? right now contaminated by the same type of philosophy and practices that can cause these things to happen again. Find that out and start doing the type of necessary training, cross-cultural and other capacity-building training as a way of prevention down the road. That would be my recommendation. Right, and I take that. And, and one of the, one of the, the, the issues that, that I grapple with in trying to, to keep an open mind as much as possible with, with, with the incidents like this, is that the police is supposed to be trained. So the police is supposed to be held to a much higher standard than a regular citizen with a gun in an altercation and shoot somebody. Um, 
doesn't there seem to be sort of like a, a rush to use the most lethal, you know, lethal force to me should be a last resort. Um, and I mean, we can move it out of out of Ferguson. We can move it to. Uh, I remember a, couple, like, a year ago in Times Square, there was a a, a a man that seemed like he was maybe mentally deranged, and he was surrounded by maybe ten policemen. And the police, instead of maybe subduing him, they shot him several times. And, and it just seems that it just seems like there is something fundamentally wrong when persons who are supposed to be highly trained um, in various types of combat, various types of submission, at least we assume that they are, that seem to think that that um, the use of the gun is is like a first step in, in trying to, to, to subdue a, a situation. That That is what I think um, is a thinking that may be permeating the, the minds of the public. So, so how does a, a police department try to roll that back, um, and and try to, and to regain the trust of the community? Yeah, that's a very good question. The, the the way to do that would be to look at police training and police practice in a very careful way, especially the nodes of training that relate to the justification of the use of legal of, of lethal force, right? Because police officers are called to respond to situations that the callers believe themselves that they are not equipped to deal with, and, and, and the call police or the police may happen themselves upon a situation where no one called them, but they are in a situation uh, of danger. How are police officers trained to be able to forecast the extent to which their response for or to a situation does not violate you know the the use of excessive force and when you ask that question you will say okay well then what are the, what were police officers trained in terms of what are the triggers for the use of excessive force and and if you were to ask that question, and someone, and, and from my colleagues who who are who are police officers from um, the own law enforcement training that I have provided or have received as a soldier when I was in combined um, uh, combined um, operations with police and so on, one of the things that we we um, we need to remember is that the the black man, the black man in America, is by himself, I don't care if he looks as, as young and handsome as you do, Anthony. That's true. You're actually right at this one. But okay, maybe not as young and handsome as I assume you you, you know, you, you, you look like a guy in a three-piece suit that is not going to hurt a fly. I presume that's what you look, right? Yeah, right? Or you could look like me. Or you could look like me, you know, a guy with bald head with a, stock, with a stocky figure. And if I probably put on... Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, a hoodie or, or so on, or I just regularly dress or I usually dress, um, and and that I may pose a threat because of my build. You know, I've had people tell me that. You know, I've had police officers, you know, in certain situations, um, respond in certain ways to people of my build because there's a certain threat of intimidation because they think that person is going to do something or not or whatever. 
Um, but the, but the fact of the matter is that just the fact that you are as dark as I am, and maybe as soon as you are, a black man, you know, is seen number one as a, as a threat. A young black man in America is seen oftentimes there's another level of threat. Now, if you add or expectation of threat, if you add certain circumstances to that, the, the a cell phone in your hand that could be perceived as a gun, and think about a white man with a cell phone in his hand, right? Um, somebody may be just reaching to his to his belt and to pick up his cell phone. A black man, a black man, a white man reaching to pick up his belt. You would say, why is it that police officers are so conditioned to respond? to the blackness of skin and the gender of male with such expectation that their life is in danger and that they must not just shoot once, but shoot many times as if, if you shoot one, a black man with one bullet in his chest, that will not kill him. Maybe that will kill a white man one bullet, but maybe a black man needs seven bullets or, or, or whomever. Because I mean, so, so what is it about a young a black man uh, that could that could cause that. And one of the things you find in police training, and police officers will tell you this if they're honest. You know, this is they tell me this all the time in interviews and in regular conversation. That you, that one you profile that part of the ways that they are taught to profile is to profile with expectations of certain types of danger. And 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 for what the police officer, at least from what I've read, Ferguson is saying, well, the gentleman. Uh, Brown reached into his car as if he was going to grab his gun. Now, that would probably seem uh, to some people, if you think a young black man is kind of a thug and is, is up to no good, it seems to be a sellable story to a lot of people because they think of young black men as, 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 as troublemakers. They think of young men, for the most part, as people who do that type of thing. And the, the, the police officer who knows well that he's protected under the law to kill someone in order to save his life of course, he may say something like, no, no, he may say, of course, that's the truth of what happened. But the eyewitness is saying, no, that's not what, that's not what happened. So there is something about a black, uh, there is something about the race. And there is something about a black man and a young black man in America. And how police officers are trained to respond to situations, even if, of course, there are a lot of situations that involve black men doing wrong. But how do the situations of a few black men doing wrong get uh, somewhat exaggerated or, or, or expanded to the fact that every black man or most black men of certain ages are threats to the point where lethal force is necessary. And I think we need to get to the core of what aspects of police training, not just initial police training in training school, but police continuing training, because if every profession you have is continuing training, what sort of, what sort of sensitivity training that you get that they get after they become police officers and, and before they get poli become police officers while they're in training to allow them to not overcompensate with such violence when uh, youth, blackness, and male are combined together. I, I think that's where the action is. That's the question that we need answered. And the answer of that, we need to devise training and a whole movement or, or, around this kind of, this kind of injustice um, occurring. Uh, and I would add to that, if I may, the consequences once those, once those incidents do happen, the perception in the mind of the officer of what the consequence would be in shooting a young black male by accident, if possible, and the consequence of shooting a, a, a young white male by accident. That's yes, perception uh, uh, of the consequence. Right. And, 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 and if I may not, I mean, I, I, I'm going to muddy the water a little bit. 
but I do not want to lose the point because we are not, you know, you know, we, a lot of black men kill a lot of black men in the United States. And one of the questions that we ask is, why is there so much black on black violence? And we may even ask, well, there's so much black and black violence. Why aren't we having a lot of radio talk shows and stuff over the thousands of young black men that lose their lives? And why do they get the kind of media attention that the white man killing one, one white man killing one black uh, kid, let alone in, in a way that we see is, is unjust? And everybody, including myself, agree that if indeed all the facts are true, that that type of injustice, that should not happen. But why is it that we are so outraged over this white man, over this police officer. And if it were a black police officer, we would be that much outraged. It's just something in addition that race brings that, 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 that causes um, you know, that level of outrage. But if you think about it, a lot of the reasons, at least because I work with killers in Chicago, I work with killers in Buffalo, I am in Buffalo, New York as we speak. I didn't go to a vigil this afternoon for a murder that happened of a young athlete because I was anticipating your your interview and I was preparing for it and and, and I was a, another vigil the other day and I'm kind of vigil out, you know, because I'm not really here to attend homicide vigils. But but one of the things that black men who kill other black men who have killed other black men and black men who try to kill other black men and black men who actually are currently in pursuit of killing other black men, part of what they tell me when I work with them has to do a lot with the extent to which they value, not just value the life, but it gets back to what you're asking, as to what are the consequences? What is the probability that A, that actually one will even try to find them, or someone will even have a big talk, a big protest, to find them for the, for the wrong that they did? Second of all, you know, what values of, is that life in the first place? I mean, even thinking about that, you know, in terms of, I'm just, I'm just going to kill an end. Because, you know, he did that, this to me. But if I kill him, what is going to happen to me? And I think the calculation in the black man's mind that is the killer of another black man and the calculation in the mind of the police officer, whether he were to be black, white, male or female, I think we cannot ignore the, the, the social value of the life and the consequences or the probability of justice. In, in our answers to why is it that so many black men kill other black men, and why is it that police officers would be more likely to kill a black man than they would a white man given the same circumstance? So, so if we have to, to take that to the, next, to the next logical point, from within the black community then, what are some of the things that we can do that would begin to enhance and put more of a value on the life of a black on the life of a black man in the united states well, well one of the things i mean first of all is that the the value of the the contribution that that contribution that black people black and brown people but certainly black people as we're talking about that in the united states the value that they that they they they, they have that they make to society the economic, the social, the cultural, you know, the entertaining, the psychological, the value of the black man needs to be enhanced and elevated much more than it is now. Much of what you hear about the black father as a dead, as a deadbeat dad, as a uh, he has a felony, he's no good. His woman makes more money than him. You know, he's uneducated, and and so on and so forth. 
We hear that 25% of black men in the United States, my age, a little bit younger, a little bit older, is caught up in the criminal justice system one way or the other. And we, all of us, all black males in the United States, have a chip of their reputation being attacked, a percentage of their reputation being attacked because of that statistic or the awareness or the expectation that there are 25 out of 100 black men are caught up in the criminal justice system one way or the other. What we have to do is to change that and to realize that 75 out of 100 black men in the United States is not caught up in the criminal justice system at all, notwithstanding the, the, the economic, the cultural, the political oppression that we face in the United States. 75 out of 100 of that, including myself, have, are, are not caught up in the criminal justice system. How do we make this? First of all, what's our story? In spite of how much injustice we face, how do we stay out of trouble? What's our story? And how do we make that 76%? How do we make that 78 and 79%? All of the greatness that we see with athleticism, that we see with intellectualism, that the black man contributes to this country, how do we put this in the, on, up on the pedestal and let the young black men realize, even now having a president in the United States, in the White House, that the worth of a black man is much more than what you are told? So that way, when you respond to a black man or a black woman, you are responding to someone of worth more than the expectation that the white man's blood is worth more because if you kill a white man, they're going to find you. And if you see a white man, you're safe. But if you see a black man, you are in danger. But 75 out of 100 of us are not caught up and are not involved in the system at all. So I think those positive things that black men have done and continue to do in the United States and in the world... We need, to, we need to bring that out because the very basis of slavery, the very, sla the ba very basis of both slavery as we know it historically and... Well, and, and well slavery, Professor, let me yeah. ask you to pause one minute. I have a caller on the line. Let's, let's, let's get a contribution from the caller. Okay. Right. Yes, caller, good evening. Um, welcome to this week in interview. Um, did you want to join the discussion? Good evening, this is Nelson, and I wanted to, actually I wanted to um, share a thought that I was having as I was listening to Peter's talk. I missed Peter, I can't remember your last name, I'm sorry. Dr. Seja, Dr. Seja. Um, Dr. Seja, that's right. I was just telling somebody on my way home that, Dr., that Peter Seja was on, Dr. Seja, and now I, I had a blank. Um, and you, you alluded to the thought I was having. And Dr. what I feel strongly is one of the problems we have within our own community, and therefore the other community being the white population can but themselves have the same um, sentiment. I feel a lot of us as a black people devalue ourselves and our work. That mental slavery thing is still very awake and alive. That's the feeling I'm getting. And therefore the devaluation of each other, shooting each other, or paying no regard. And then when the other people see us treating each other like that, they in turn do the same, because already they had that feeling way back anyway. So it's just, it's just feeding the thought. And no matter how much we protest, the culture is still there of not valuing oneself as a black person, as a people, and the other people disregarding us, looking at, looking at us as subhuman. I think it's very much in a lot of their minds. 
And on that note, I'll just hang up and listen to your response. But that's how I feel about the situation. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Carla. And Dr. Sajid, yes. this was keeping right in line with what you were talking about. What, but I was asking, in terms of concrete steps, what are some of the things, what are some of the steps? Uh, and, and before I go on, let me just give out the number that listeners can call in if you don't know. Uh, you can call in 202-525-7231. 202-525-7231 if you want to join in the conversation or if you have a question for for Dr. Seja. But yes, I was I was trying to figure out, say, you know, we have persons listening. What are some of the things that they can do um, to try to turn that tide of opinion, that, that devaluation of, of a black man or black woman in the United States? Well, the, the first thing to be done, to my mind, would be a, 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 a huge campaign, you know, a, a titled something similarly to amplifying the worth of a black man or celebrating the worth of a black man. That will allow those of us who know the value of black men to, to understand those values and talk about those values and have a platform for that. For those who are not really much aware of the, 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 the worth of a black man, the contribution that black men make in the United States and black women um, towards quality of life, rather than just some of the hype that we hear, that those who do not know much can, can learn more and, and third of all, that the young black men that question what their own worths are, that they themselves can be educated to know, you know, that, 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 they, are, that they are made, they're standing on the shoulders of giants who have made those great contributions to society. And while we say that none of us have made or continue to be made, so there needs to be some kind of massive campaign and, 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 uh, and uh, infomercials and so on that really celebrates the, the, the goodness and the contribution of black men in the United States um, and, and around the world for the most part. The, 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 other, the other part to that, besides just this campaign uh, to celebrate the success of the black men, that there has to be a concerted effort to address a lot of the ills that, that black men do, that black men really do, because well, for their own deliberate reasons, or sometimes even for reasons associated with their responses to, to real or perceived oppression or victimization. And for black men to be sharing their experiences with other black men and with others as to how it is that we are all probably facing similar types of circumstances, but what type of tools do black men use? How do black men make peace? How do black men do peace? How do black men do good family? How do black men do good fathering? How do black men do good monogamous relationships? How do black men, you know, do whether these relationships are monogamous or not, but how are they be able, are able to maintain respectable relationships that improve the quality of life of the people who are part of those relationships? These are the kinds of success stories that we need to share. We, knew, we know how black men fail, but we do not know much about how black men succeed. Black men oftentimes fail in public and succeed in silence. And we need to change that. So I would say any type of, you know, the, uh, President Obama has this Your Brother Keeper program, but any kind of program that is interested in turning the tide about this kind of unjust response to the black man has to do a buffalo first of all, deal with amplifying those worth, uh, addressing some of the problems that we are really causing, and then creating a culture of the celebration of, of the black man as a valuable contributor to society. Now, 
it's very interesting. We were having the discussion, and of course, we started the discussion of the relationship with the police and the community. And um, it, it, and it's inevitable that we talk about the relationship with the police and our community. And and what 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 it seems to me is that there is a distinct difference in the relationship that the police has with, say, the white community and the relationship that the police has with the black community. So, so it's not so much that the policeman doesn't have the necessary skills that he needs to do proper policing. It is that he needs to, he, he needs to be trained to, to apply those skills to the black community. And, and we, as a community, need, need to be able to demand that type of, of interaction. We not only demand it, but we need to be able to position ourselves to be an equal participant in that, in that relationship. And that there seems to be where the, the dilemma is, that um, the police deals with, with the white community in one way, they deal with the black community in another way. So it means that they have the skills. They just need to... There need to be a movement now where those same skills that they apply to white community gets applied to the black community, and um, and 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 we say that okay, one of the main issues we have to deal with is the perceived value that we place on our black life, and which includes the ease with which we 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 experience violence, and sometimes the absence of consequences when we do have um, unfavorable results. Yeah, that, that that that's a very good uh, very good point and and, and, a, and a very very insightful point. Um, and and if I were to speak, you know, a, a semi on on the, on the behalf of white police officers um, who have been my, my 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 clients in training or my colleagues in in, in operations, you know, when I was um, in, in, in in military services. What 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 the what the white what police officers have said to me when um, asking them why don't you treat my brothers uh, as good as you treat your brothers? What their response is that? Well, you cannot act as if the reputation of my brothers and the behavior of my brothers are the same as the reputation and the behaviors of your brothers. Nonetheless, not all of your brothers, but there is a a level of hate that your brothers have against police officers, the type of hate that is more likely to put my life in danger as opposed to the hate that my white brothers may have that, may, that they may somehow uh, um, affect my, 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 my rank and promotion or write a letter against me or maybe one or two of them may shoot at me, but primarily the type of hate and rage that are among my white brothers, as they say, are not the level of rage that I in your black brothers. So if you're asking me to assume that the, the danger that I expose myself with run, in a random sample of black men and white men to be the same, and that I should, I should approach the, the black man with the same level of, of, of kindness or... or, or, or um, expectation of, of survival without injury, you're asking me more than what I am trained to do, and you're asking me more than what I know from experience. You know, that's kind of how they have responded. You know, but I say, well, then how do you, how do you, how do you account for the fact that, you know, even your white 
um, 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 lower class or poorer white man, you will treat in a way that, uh, that, that, that is kind of the menace to society. You will treat in a way that is more humane than the black man who is probably the suit-wearing or the law-abiding uh, citizen. Why is it that even a mad black man of higher class will get worse treatment than you would give uh, to a white man of lower class if you were to say kind of his class and his behavior and involvement in crime is what causes you to be so antagonistic? And he said, well, you know what? It's hard to really, what they have typically told me, is hard to really divide or untangle the behavior of the thug, the black thug on the street, as the one police officer told me, to the, 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 man, the black man in the suit. Because you don't know the black man in the suit has the thought capabilities. And I say, you know what, man, this stuff is a lot deeper. It's a lot deeper than we may think on the surface. So the point that you made is a very uh, a good one. But in my hands-on training and interaction with police officers, it, it's a little more muddy, you know, than, than it appears on the surface. So also, I mean, I live, I live in Brooklyn. I live in a very black section of Brooklyn. And one of the things that I observe about Brooklyn is that there's very little employment for black people in Brooklyn, especially black young men. Uh, we see construction going on on the street, and you can usually count the number of black men that you see, some total of all the crews that you see patching potholes and doing work on the streets, you can probably count three or four black men. Um, even, even in terms of the guys who pick up the trash, I mean, the, the only place where you see a significant number of black people working in the world is the postal service. And so, where does our elected officials, where does our our leaders come in and start to advocate. Because if we start talking about the value that a black man brings to the society, certainly employment and income has to feature very highly in that regard. And, 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 if, and if the, the jobs that our tax money generates in the community are, are taken up by persons outside of the community, what then, for one, you have the black man have time on his hands because he's not employed, and two, you have people from the outside just doing all the work. He doesn't feel that anybody has any use for him. So, so, so the question that I am asking in terms of what we can do about it is what role do we, how, how should we be holding our elected people accountable and what role does that relationship play in this whole um aspect of turning the tide around in terms of, of, of how persons perceive us as a community? Uh, you know, the, in the United, the United States and in capitalist societies, there is a very simple, you know, economic principle that hovers over almost everything, which is if it doesn't make dollars, it doesn't make sense. And, and, and part of how it makes dollars is that it's connected to power. Who, would, who has the power has the dollars, and who has the power get the way. So if power is tied to a political office, because you know most of the shots have to get called, a lot of things have to go to the political offices and for government and the, the politicians and the lawmakers, then who really have the power? And the answer is those with the vote. 
So if you were to think about how can a regular man who is suffering get a voice that can make a change for his reality, the answer is that he has a vote, at least in theory, at least in theory, he has a vote that if he is not satisfied with the power structure that is currently guiding and protecting his quality of life, that he or she can amass a critical number of people to have a pack to where the powers that be must listen to them because they have a vote. And if they do not listen to them, they will use that vote to teach them that they have to listen to them, and they will keep voting out of office and supporting in office those that they believe have the best interests at heart. As strange as cliche as that might sound, I, I believe that kind of, of course, cliche maybe five, ten years, ten years, maybe 15 years ago. But the more that I am working closer with politicians and politicians and people getting big contracts and people who have, you know, levy, lev, uh, who have, have leverage over who gets what, I realize the same way that we say if a police officer believes that the value of a black man is not valuable. So he's, or if he does something to the black man, maybe many people might not talk, or he might get a slap on the wrist. It's the same way that the people that I know who work in city government, who have to simply pave the streets or, or, or supervise over the paving of the streets, that they know that in the black community, if those potholes are left, you will hear a little bit of noise about it. Though, you know, one of the first indications that you enter in a black community, a black poor community in Brooklyn or in Chicago or in Newark, New Jersey, is that you start to get bumpy rides on your, on your, while you're driving down the road. The rides start to get bumpy and the puddles start to get big. And when you ask the, the, the politicians, as I do, why is it that the roads on that side of, the, of town, as opposed to the other side of town, where you collect the same taxes, so work is so bad, the response is similar to the guy who shoots the black man with, with expectation of relative impunity that a pothole on the black side of town and the pothole on the white side of town is not going to amass the same level of, polit of threatening political response. You understand? So unless the, the, the sufferers realize that, especially sufferers that can vote, even if they have felonies in some states, such as Illinois, if people with felonies can vote, but unless people take that vote very seriously and understand well, what the power people in those power structure positions, what they do, and let them truly work for the people, people will continue to be eaten off the, 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 eaten off the crumbs from the tables of the people who are indeed their servants, that treat them as if they are the servants. So that is, that is, that is where it is. It's really, to my mind, on the basis of political mobilization, because that is where laws get changed. That is where administrative, that's, where, that's how grants and monies are distributed from the hands of those those in power. Oh, this this is beautiful because <laughs> I think we've we've distilled this thing right back to saying that that the power to change this circumstance lies in the hands of this of, of our community. And Absolutely. If, and if we can mobilize our people and let them realize that they have that power then the change has to come. If we have enough elected people advocating for us, who's going to hold the police commissioner and the district attorney and all of these people responsible when something happens to a young black man, when the police interacts with us negatively, 
we have, we will see that tide turn around. And, and it comes right back around because now a black vote becomes more valuable and therefore a black life becomes more valuable. And, and, I, and I think we've, we've, we've really been able to, to really flesh this thing out and, and to come back. This is what I like to do on, on this week in interview. I like to leave my listeners with, with distinct actions that they can take. And it seems that what we're coming to is saying, well, you know, if we, if we want to, apart from protesting and talking about it, we really need to start mobilizing so we can hold our politicians accountable and we, can, and we need to start mobilizing political power. And, and, you know, Anthony, it actually goes a bit beyond holding politicians accountable. To the, the, the first step of that, we need to have in office the politicians that have our best interests at heart. Right. And even when we believe in them, we need to, as Henry George Stoll said once in, in, to me in Trafalgar, after we put them in office, we need to macro them. You know, that's how Henry George Stoll, you know, <laughs> Henry George, the, the federal politician, he said, you need to macro those politicians. You know, you need to macquelly them. That's what he said in, in, in those two words. Mm -hmm. That you need to really be seeing and you need to be watching. You cannot be playing friend, friend, friend. You know, even if it's your friend or your cousin that is dear, you have to ensure that there's accountability. And if they are not being accountable to you, you have to vote them out. But you have to, you have to be preparing people that are able to replace the incompetence that you see, however you see it. I mean, in, in, in Buffalo here, in, on October 19th of 2004, we had a big protest down in front of City Hall because we were dissatisfied with Rocco, with Rocco Dina, that was the police the police chief. And we were out there protesting, yeah, yeah, we said, no, Rocco Dina got to go. And I mean, we protested. Dr. Sergeant, can you hold that thought for me one last time? We have one last caller. Hold on for me one second. Yes, caller, good evening, and welcome to this weekend interview. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you, caller, for calling in. Do you have a question or, or a comment? Yeah, I mostly have a comment. Um, I, I just want to say that, Dr. Sesha, I, I pretty much agree with everything that you're saying in terms of the symptoms and the causes of some of these issues. But, um, and the solutions that you're giving. But the thing is, how many people who hear this interview listening right now and will hear about this, this discussion and go out at the next voting time and date and vote and actually go and vote in their own interest. Because a lot of times, I, you know, most of the people around me I talk to, they'll say, oh, I'm not voting. I don't go and vote. You know, they're not interested in voting at all. So I think that is one of the attitudes that we have to change and we have to get people to understand that voting is not just a privilege. It is a right and it's also a duty. That 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 is is my contribution. Um, what do you think about that? Thank, thank I'll, you. I'm not now and let you continue. Thank, thank you. you very much, caller. And um, I I would say from our discussion, not only it is a right and a duty, it is a it is a tool and a weapon that we can use um, in our fight to to get a better a better a better share. Um, Dr. Sergio, you can you can um, respond to the caller as well as you can continue the the, the um, story you gave us about the protest in Bo in um, Buffalo that you had. Hello, Dr. Sergio. Yes, sir. Yes. 
Did you did you hear the question from the caller? No, absolutely nothing at all. I couldn't no, hear. It, it seems uh, he was he was just saying that um, he agreed with most of what you said, but he, the one issue that he had was not with what you said, but with the fact that so many of our people choose not to vote. And, yeah. and and by choosing yeah. not to vote, they don't realize that they they are giving up a big part of their right uh, or their duty. Um, so I was saying that you can respond to that aspect of it as well as you can continue um, with the story that you were giving about the about the protest about that police commissioner. Right now, the the, the yeah, I, I think the caller is right that that most people do not vote. Um, most people would not want to vote. And the question is why they would not want to vote. And uh, part of the reason why they would not want to vote is because they do not see the value. First of all, sometimes they don't understand the value of a vote. And, second, and uh, first of all, and second of all, they don't understand the value of their vote to the total values of vote in the first place. And, and sometimes they do not understand the accumulated value of one vote because one vote is one vote, but one vote from a thousand people, that's a thousand votes. And a thousand votes is a lot of votes. Some people win, you know, you win for one vote. So I think part of it is an educational mission, an educational movement to, to teach people about the power of the vote. And listen now, when I talk about voting here, I'm not talking about, you know, we're talking about situations in the United States, we're talking about situations in Dominica and so on. I'm not talking about whether or not you like a prime minister or you don't like a prime minister, or whether or not, you know, you, you like a party or you don't like a party. I'm talking about the judges that preside over in the United States, over the matters. These are elected officials. I'm talking about legislators that make laws. So we need to think about voting away from whether it's Obama or whether it's another country leader or, or, or an opposition leader that we want or do not want. And remember that voting is a part of almost every aspect of a political process. Even in a, in a condominium association that you, that, that you may live in, there are people who vote on the school board. There are people who vote on things that affect your children. So voting is not just voting for, for national level. Voting is also some on small levels. And it's very important that we, we practice that right, that right there to vote. So I was saying then that, that although the police chief in, Buff, in Buffalo, New York, is not, is not elected, is not voted, uh, right, he's commissioned by the, the, the police chief and other, by the mayor and others, we were sending a message to the mayor that we were not pleased with that police commissioner in 2004, and he had to go. And if the mayor expected any support from the black community, he had to heard, hear the voice of the community that that police commissioner had to go. And that we wanted a black detective, we said we wanted a, uh, uh, more black detectives, in, uh, homicide detectives, we wanted a few things we wanted, and we were out there making the noise. And besides making the noise, what was happening is that people were sending letters to the mayor, people were making phone calls to the mayor, and we were threatening his power to be reelected if those things were not satisfied. And guess what happened? We got the first black police chief in Buffalo history not too long after that. And some things that were problems, some problems continued, but we were able to have a voice in the police force in a way that we, we thought was necessary to start making inroads into some aspects that do the quality of life um, in the Buffalo community. You know, so, so I, and, and now, of course, the Byron Brown is the first black mayor, he's still a black mayor in the community. People are not completely satisfied with the way that he treats it, that he responds to the community, but some people are satisfied and some people are not. But the fact of the matter is that you can't say that the condition of black community is that we don't have a black mayor that understands black people's conditions. Well, because a mayor is black doesn't mean he understands black people's conditions, but having a black mayor in, 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 
in power should be at least one indication that we are one step closer than maybe otherwise. So people have to think about the, the power of their voice in that vote as something from very small aspects of life to something of major aspects as I think about solutions. So certainly, and, and as we approach as we approach the close of the discussion, it's almost a quarter past. Um, I would just want to invite you to to wrap wrap up um, what we spoke about. I think we had a very very fruitful discussion. We started on on the different aspects of policing, and and we went into the root causes of what what might cause the negative interaction of the police and and what we can do about it. So so I, I invite you to to just um, wrap up and, and, and summarize um, the discussion. Very, very fruitful discussion, I think, that we've had. Well, I, you know, I, I want to, first of all, thank you for the opportunity, you know, to, to, to do this interview. I'm, I'm happy to be sitting on the east side of Buffalo, you know, the most, the more, most murderous section of the city. We're in my house, the house that I still have, and if I live in Chicago, working with people on the ground. So, I mean, the, my response to this is very, is very, very real. And I really want to encourage a lot of young people to become involved in, in law enforcement. I want to encourage a lot of young men and women to aspire to be police officers, to aspire to be lawyers, to aspire to be lawmakers, and have good conscience and have good, clear heart. Because we need to create a new breed. We need to create a new breed of, of, of police officers that are corrupt. Of, of, of policymakers that are corrupt. We need to let young people know that the shame that you see in policing, the shame that you see in corruption, is not is by design the wrong thing. And that is not what defines why your forefathers died for the right to vote, and why so many so many people like Dr. King and Malcolm X and others and uh, and Bala and Congo and people in the Caribbean that actually stood up against oppression. The reason why they did that and why so many of us are on the forefront looking for justice and creating peace is that we want to create a new social breed of human beings. And I would really want to encourage young persons and persons that are in position now to think about becoming good examples of police officers and good examples of lawmakers so that we can have a future generation of, 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 of human beings that have more peace intelligence and who focus on the quality of life of our community rather than believing the hype and, and destroying us. Certainly. And I think that is a brilliant way to end it because it ended right on the note of one more thing that we can do in our community is to encourage our young people to get involved in law enforcement. Dr. Sejan, as usual, um, we're very delighted to have you on this weekend interview. Um, we're very thankful that you so uh, we're so generous with your time and your knowledge, and um, we wish you all the best. And um, I, we promise that we we need to bring you back so you can talk about um, your peaceful world movement. So let's stay in touch and let's schedule a, a a special show so you can we can talk to the audience a little bit more about that aspect of 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 the um, of your work. So I wish to thank you very much, and, and I wish you all the best. Thank you once again. Uh, uh, thank you, Anthony. And Anthony, I want to tell you on, I don't know what night you do the show, but from um, September 15th to about the 21st, I'll be in Seoul, Korea, on an international peace conference. Maybe we should do a, an interview from Seoul, Korea, talking about this issue of peace right there on the ground. But we'll talk about that. Oh, that would be very exciting. We'd welcome that opportunity. 
Okay, take care. Good night. All right, thank you. Good night. Well, listeners, um, one more time, we've had, uh, as I think, was very inspiring, very enlightening conversation. Uh, and this is what my my objective was in inviting Dr. Senja. Dr. Senja is brilliant. I, as, as I told you at the top of the show, I think he's one of the preeminent thinkers on social issues, on policing and law enforcement. And um, we wanted, I wanted to have a discussion that was of a different nature than all the talking that we hear on the popular media. And I think we were able to get that tonight. So I thank you for, for staying with us. Um, we, we decided that we would go a little bit over the, um, the time because the, the discussion warranted it. And um, just to recap, vote. Not only vote for anybody, but really hope vote. And after you voted, hold the persons that you vote accountable. Vote in your school board. Either so we can start having this type of discussions in the classroom so we can start training people from young. Um, we can start looking for some more employment in our neighborhoods for the persons from the neighborhoods. And uh, so I, I want to thank you for staying with us tonight. It has been another This Week in Interview on tdnradio.net. It's August the 20th, 2014. I'm your host, Anthony Drago. And I want to say thank you to my engineer and producer, Sam, Sam George, as usual, holding it down and making sure that everything is in place and we have a quality show. And um, I, I want to thank all our listeners. A special thank you to Dr. Um, Dr. Senja. He's always so, he's so brilliant. He's always so generous with his time and his knowledge. And we, we thank um, that God that we are blessed with persons um, such as this in our presence. So once again, um, I wish you a, a very good night. Um, we'll take one quick word from our... You know, there are many choices when it comes to domain registration, web hosting, and dedicated servers. But I have to tell you about Jocko Hosting. They're simply the best. With their 99.9% .9 uptime guarantee, 24-7 sales and support teams, you'll never have to worry. Get in touch with them today. They offer plenty of other products and services like SSL certificates, managed WordPress, and more. Call or click today, 480-624-2500. Jocko.com. That's J-A-C-H-Q-O.com.